are listening to 99 Years, a black exploration of the deliberate creation of the whitest state in the nation. My name is Samuel James. Things weren't really working out for Thomas Dixon. It was the end of his first semester at John Hopkins University, and he was about to drop out. Against the advice of his good friend and fellow classmate, Woodrow Wilson, Dixon was going to follow his dream of becoming an actor. Dixon was a gifted performer. He was also arrogant and malicious and a braggart, generally irritating, and a whole host of other traits that kept most people from wanting anything to do with him. But he was also a gifted performer, and he knew it. This was the 1880s, and life as an actor meant life in the theater, and that life was difficult. Dixon would discover that he wasn't really interested in anything difficult. He really only wanted people applauding him for being, well, him. So acting didn't work out either. He failed so hard at acting that he had to go back home to North Carolina, where he soon ran for a seat in the state's General Assembly. He was only 20 years old, but being a gifted performer, he won. Easily. Campaigning was it. He finally found a way to get applause for being himself. But as actual lawmaking required more than that, his political career ended after a single two-year term. Next, Dixon became a preacher. This is where he found enormous success. Success isn't even sufficient enough of a word. He started off in Goldsboro, North Carolina, and within two years, he was preaching at the Dudley Street Baptist Church in Boston and getting offered an honorary doctorate from Wake Forest University. He turned the doctorate down, though, and suggested they give it to his old college buddy, the still unknown Woodrow Wilson. At this point, Dixon had the largest congregation of any Protestant preacher in the country, and so his approval of Wilson got national press, giving Wilson his first taste of national exposure. In 1889, Dixon would take a position as a pastor of the 23rd Street Baptist Church in New York City. He became so popular there that the church couldn't even contain his audience. Thousands were turned away every Sunday. John D. Rockefeller offered half a million dollars to build Dixon his own temple. Things were going impossibly well for him. But there were some problems. A rift was growing between him and the church. Some congregants were certainly coming to hear Dixon spread the good word, but a whole lot of others were coming to hear him lecture on another topic altogether. If you've heard previous episodes of 99 Years, you might have already guessed that, like his old friend Woodrow Wilson, Thomas Dixon was an extremist white supremacist. After the Civil War, things really did begin to change. From the Oxford Handbook of African American Citizenship, 1865 to present, quote, Reconstruction radicals, black and white, were able to implement programs that greatly expanded health care, aid to the poor, debt relief, and public education in states throughout the South. In the two decades that followed Reconstruction, growing labor unrest in the North and farmer organizing among both whites and blacks started to challenge planter rule in several southern states and even won some notable electoral victories as the 19th century began to come to a close. 
The response of Southern elites was to wave the bloody flag and launch a campaign that not only had the goals of A, ending the political threat from radicalized blacks, B, preventing any more interracial political coalitions of the dispossessed, and as important, C, winning widespread Northern support for the Southern solution to the race problem, end quote. So, while Wilson was laying the foundation of what would become the city manager form of government for the white supremacist cause of the Southern elites, Dixon had left the church and was working on his own Southern solution to the race problem. He'd become a touring lecturer, or as historian F. Garvin Davenport Jr. put it, Dixon became, quote, a spokesman for Southern Jim Crow segregation and for American racism in general, end quote. Dixon grew his following on lecture circuits in the South, where many like-minded bigots would pay to hear him say things like, quote, No amount of education of any kind, industrial, classical, or religious, can make a Negro a white man or bridge the chasm of centuries which separate him from the white man in the evolution of human nature. End quote. The lecturing circuit eventually became too much for Dixon and he decided to try his hand at writing novels. At this point, he was very rich and very famous, and so his first novel, The Leopard's Spots, sold over 100,000 copies in the first six months. The book itself is white supremacy in novel form. Of course, emancipated black folks are the villains of the story. They want all the white property and white women, the fear propelled throughout the novel is black sexuality, but it's also fear of black participation in government. At the end of the book, the lead character, Charles Gaston, has finally become governor of North Carolina, and he gives a rousing speech addressing these fears. Quote, Shall this grand old commonwealth lag behind and sink into the filth and degradation of a negroid corruption in this solemn hour of the world? The hour has struck when we must rise in our might, break the chains that bind us to this corruption, strike down the Negro as a ruling power, and restore our children their birthright, which we received a priceless legacy from our fathers. Shall we return to this? You must answer. The corruption of his presence in our body politic is beyond the power of reckoning. End quote. The idea of black people's participation in government defining corruption was one both Dixon and Wilson shared, as anti-corruption would eventually become a main dog-whistle selling point of the city manager system. The KKK had been formed in 1865, but Congress had passed the Ku Klux Klan Act just six years later, effectively disbanding them. In 1882, the Supreme Court ruled that act unconstitutional, but the damage had been done. Like Wilson, Dixon loved the Klan. Both his father and his uncles had been members, and so the KKK would be featured in Dixon's books. His second novel was called The Klansman. He and D.W. Griffith would turn that novel into the very first blockbuster movie, changing the title to Birth of a Nation. The very purpose of the books and the film, according to Dixon, was, quote, 
to create feelings of aberrance in white people, especially white women, against colored men. End quote. Again, the villains of the story were emancipated black folks out to get all the white property and women. The heroes were the KKK, and the story glorifies their violence against black men, who are exclusively portrayed as rapists. The plot revolves around a northern family and a southern family, and ends with the northerners realizing they were wrong, renouncing their pursuit of political rights for black people, and becoming fans of the Klan. The release of Birth of a Nation in 1915 brought two old friends back together again, as Wilson, who was preparing for his second term as president, held a screening of the movie at the White House, the first film ever to be screened there. Maybe it was because Wilson was quoted extensively throughout the film, maybe it was just his unabashed white supremacy overflowing, Maybe a little of both. But after the viewing, Wilson reportedly said, quote, It is like writing history with lightning, and my only regret is that it is all so terribly true. End quote. Wilson was still facing criticism for resegregating the federal government, his most recent attempt to undermine half a century of black American achievement following emancipation. But Dixon was on the road, touring Birth of a Nation and changing minds. He wrote to Wilson, quote, This play is transforming the entire population of the North and the West into sympathetic Southern voters. There will never be an issue of your segregation policy. End quote. Dixon definitely oversold the success of his national brainwashing campaign. But Birth of a Nation absolutely captured the attention of William Joseph Simmons. After reading coverage of the White House screening and 10 days before the film's Georgia premiere, Simmons would gather a group of racists, climb Stone Mountain outside of Atlanta, and burn a cross, officially reviving the Ku Klux Klan. As we've covered in previous episodes, Woodrow Wilson and his Confederates created and promoted the white supremacist city manager form of government and inspired the rebirth of the Ku Klux Klan, who would help install that form of government in Portland, Maine, 99 years ago. That system has led to the continued segregation of Portland's black population, as well as our disproportionately higher poverty rates and lower property ownership, household income, and earnings growth. And so, when the biggest city in the whitest state formed a charter commission to examine that system, it was significant that four of the 12 members were black. Michael Cabetta, appointed by the city council, Shea Stewart Boulay, who won her District 1 three-way race with more than 60% of the vote, Nazreen Sheikh Youssef, who won her at-large race with more votes than any other charter candidate in any other race in the city. And then there's Marcus Houston, who narrowly won his race against longtime Portland establishment politician Cheryl Lehman. I knew from the moment she took out papers, I knew who Cheryl was. Everyone in this city that has a pulse really probably knows who Cheryl is. And um, so I knew it was going to be challenging. People thought, told me I should drop out at that point. And I was like, I don't think I can. I care too much about this. And there's a lot of great work that we can do. And so that made us just work harder 
In the end, we won by a total of 48 votes and it was super close, but we got it done and yeah, proved a lot of people wrong. Not all of the black commissioners were able to celebrate their victories. For Commissioner Sheikh Youssef, personal tragedy was her only focus. How did it feel when you won? So when I won two days ago, my brother died. So I definitely was not feeling anything. So Your was, brother passed two days before you won? Yeah, he, he passed in June 4th and the election, I believe it was June 8th. Three days, I don't know, four days of the before the election. So I didn't know what I was feeling definitely at that moment. So Oh, no, no, I'm so sorry to hear that. I had yeah. no idea. I wouldn't have asked you. I'm so it's sorry. okay. It's okay. So, I, I mean, when I got elected, it was so excited, but it's just like, still, it was that day. The election was the day I buried my brother. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. Um, can I ask you about the tweet? After her victory, Commissioner Sheikh Youssef tweeted out, quote, John Jennings, you about to lose your job. We are going to make you the last white supremacist city manager. We are coming. End quote. The reaction to this tweet was revealing. Jennings defended himself. The so-called mayor, a former Maine State prison czar, defended Jennings and the city manager system. City councilors and others called for Commissioner Sheikh Youssef's apology and resignation. The tweet was covered by the local and national press. There was a campaign to recall her that eventually failed. She received multiple death threats. One of her many responses to this onslaught was to tweet a passage from scholar Francis Lee Ainsley. Quote, By white supremacy, I do not mean to allude only to the self-conscious racism of white supremacist hate groups. I refer instead to a political, economic, and cultural system in which whites overwhelmingly control power and material resources, Conscious and unconscious ideas of white superiority and entitlement are widespread, and relations of white dominance and non-white subordination are daily reenacted across a broad array of institutions and social settings. End quote. Is it because of my hijab? But I'm, now I'm trying to compare to Shay. I'm like, they're scared of her too. So it's, like, it's not based on my, uh, my religion and based on being immigrant. So what reason they are scared of us? Like, why we scared them? In 2021, Robin Bailey was an assistant principal at a Portland middle school. She wrote an email to the city council, the so-called mayor, and the Portland Press Herald. Quote, Good evening. I am writing tonight because I am an embarrassed parent taxpayer, and Portland Public School employee. My husband and I work hard to teach our children to be open-minded, fair, just, and most importantly, kind. The recent election and online activities of many of the Progressive Party's newly elected conduct is not only unbecoming, it is downright disgusting, rude, and should not be tolerated. 
I am not political at all, but I know right and I know wrong. The tweets, the Instagram, and Facebook posts are dividing a city that doesn't need dividing. We simply don't have the same racially charged issues as big cities. But we are creating them. We don't need to undo our educational system the way we are. We already have teachers who are teaching perspectives without alienating their students or their families. And Sheikh Youssef's comments are shameful. They are false and full of accusations and opinions. She claims she is not apologizing and is not resigning. The people of Portland deserve better. She is spreading hatred. S. Stuart Boulay's tweets about sodomy, her hatred of white people, her COVID pounds in relation to her breast size, all have zero place resting online for all to see and read. Somehow we are all supposed to relate to them. We are all supposed to entrust them. I am embarrassed for me, you, and as an educator, I am not sure how I explain this to the middle schoolers I work with. My families would not tolerate such behaviors from me, nor should they have to. I work for them. These newly elected people need to do better. No one wants to hear my next words. But we all know that if the people saying these things were not people of color, they'd be done, gone, and trashed. Please hold all people accountable for their words, not just those with whom we agree with. End quote. Now, that email is a lot, but a couple of things. First, the husband she referenced is the failed Charter Commission candidate wearing the 3%er shirt mentioned in our previous episode. Secondly, Portland absolutely does have all the same racially charged issues as big cities, and as evidenced in this podcast, some are quite a bit worse. The city is obviously far more divided than she is willing to acknowledge, and those tweets about hating white people and sodomy that she doesn't know how to explain to all the poor children, they never existed. The scary, angry black person and their sexuality is a threat to everything she and Thomas Dixon stood for, but more fictional. Bailey's racist email came to light when she was up for a promotion. A very public controversy ensued, as many in the community felt that all people should be held accountable for their words. But Bailey was not done, gone, or trashed. She, in fact, received her promotion to acting principal. Months later, at her middle school, there would be a student protest against racism. The Press Herald interviewed one of the student protesters, quote, we feel like we can't go to her with our concerns about racism after seeing that email. End quote. Soon after that, Bailey resigned, but the life of her words did not end there. Press Herald columnist Bill Nemitz had also received her email and decided to write a column chastising Portland progressives for shutting down free speech. The column was suspiciously silent about Bailey's attempt to shut down the free speech of two black women in the very email he was defending. Nemitz also neglected to mention her husband's failed charter run. Nemitz also used those fictional tweets as evidence of Bailey's case, never bothering to check if they were real. Commissioner Stuart Boulay commented in her blog at Black Girl in Maine Media, quote, 
I could brush it off as yet another unhinged diatribe, perhaps, if not for the fact that I am currently being vilified in pockets of social media by her lies, and the fact that a columnist in our city's paper with its sizable readership felt compelled to share this woman's lies about me without even the decency to contact me is unconscionable. Never mind that as an elected official who is also a public figure in other ways, this has the potential to be a safety and security issue both for me and my fellow commissioner in this current climate. End quote. Nemitz eventually did follow up with a column. He wrote about having privately apologized to Commissioner Stuart Boulay and blamed his error mostly on not following what he called the, quote, three words of wisdom my dearly departed father used to offer, end quote. Nemitz then quoted his father's three words as, quote, slow down and think, end quote, which is four words and either the column's one singular joke or still unfollowed advice. Nemitz would soon step down as a columnist from the Press Herald, citing in his final column, quote, the middle of the night panic that some wayward blunder had escaped my fact-checking, end quote. In August of 2022, after more than a year of carefully considered research, expert testimony, and conversations with the public, the Charter Commission released its final report, with eight proposed changes to Portland's infrastructure, one of which would be a return to the mayoral form of government. The proposal includes returning Portland to nine electoral districts, with nine district and three at-large councillors. The plan would also give the elected mayor the executive authority now vested in the city manager. Renamed chief administrator, the top bureaucrat in City Hall would serve under the mayor's direction. Under the current system, the only way to remove the city manager is with a majority of city council votes. In the commission's proposal, the mayor can be censured by the council, recalled by the council, recalled by the voters, fired by the council, or, of course, lose re-election. There are more than 108,000 cities and towns in the United States, and only about 3,500 have the city manager form of government. So it shouldn't really seem like such a big deal to go back to the popular and commonly understood system. Unfortunately, despite its disgusting history and criminal results, there are those in the city who are in favor of maintaining the city manager form of government. As it did 99 years ago, the Portland Press Herald has come out against the mayoral system. The Portland Chamber of Commerce has campaigned against the mayoral system so consistently and devoutly you'd think you might see 7,000 Klansmen marching through the streets of Portland at any minute. Unsurprisingly, the loudest individual voices are those elevated by the system. Portland's current so-called mayor has campaigned in support of maintaining the white supremacist form of government. She says she's not in favor of governing by referendum, even though that's the only way this change could be made, and exactly how the current system got here in the first place. Retired politician Tom Allen chairs Protect Portland's Future, a group also working to maintain the racist city manager system. As mentioned in a previous episode, Allen is not only a former Portland city councilor and symbolic mayor, but he is also the grandson of the KKK-endorsed councilor Neil W. Allen, so he's got some skin in the game. There's also the Enough is Enough campaign. 
led by three-time former symbolic mayor Nick Mavadonis. At the time of this recording, the campaign has collected over a million and a half dollars in contributions, largely from out-of-state property developers and multinational corporations. It has spent that money on lobbyists known for representing pharmaceutical companies and racist video advertising. One video in particular covers the top half of the screen with large, abrasive, all-caps text reading, quote, seize private property, end quote. The lower half of the screen is occupied by the black power fist. What you have not heard from these present and former members of Portland's leadership at any point in their careers is a plan to change the severe racial discrepancies in poverty, property ownership, income growth, joblessness, and homelessness. The system they support forbids such change. And if they win, things will likely stay the same or get worse for a long time to come. The history of the city manager form of government is a story of a small group of powerful extremist white supremacists using their power to successfully normalize their hate. The problem with normalizing hate is not just that we stop being able to see it, it's also that we then defend it. We forget the progress this country was once moving toward. We forget that some cities weren't always segregated. We forget why the KKK marched through our streets, and we forget that they won. And even though we can clearly see their desired outcomes all around us, many will say we should do nothing. It used to be worse, they'll say, leaving out that it also used to be better. This isn't the right way, they'll say, even though it is the only way. It's complicated, they'll say, and that's usually true. But this one time, it's actually simple. Portlanders voting yes on question two on the November 2022 city ballot will be voting for more democracy. Next time on 99 Years, the results of the election. 99 Years was co-produced by Flo Edwards and made with generous support from Maine Initiatives, the FUBU Fund, Maine Humanities Council, and with fiscal sponsorship through Indigo Arts Alliance.